So when I when I got back to Earth, I was worried that I would be missing space, that I would be one of the guys that all I want to do is go back to space again. And that hasn't been my case at all. I've, I enjoy Earth. It's pretty awesome. But every once in a while, I'll hear a story or I'll see a, a video of me or something will trigger it. And like, it's usually sounds, believe it or not. There was this one kind of ghostly beeping noise on the space shuttle. I've never heard that sound anywhere else. There's nothing like it. And whenever I hear that, all of a sudden I'm back in space. I can close my eyes and I am on the space station. I can close my eyes and go back to Endeavor in orbit. What's another sound that would do that for you? The space station has an exercise room, basically. There's a kind of a gym and you can do crunches and sit-ups and bench press and blah, blah, blah. So they have these metal bars. You take one off and put the other one on depending on the exercise. And all the bars are kind of sitting in this little area floating and they're banging into each other. So there's this metal clanging noise. It sounds like, it sounds like wind chimes, believe it or not. That is another sound that would bring me back. I don't know, there's a, there's a unique sound of the space station that uh, is I haven't heard anywhere else. And the coolest, I think, sound story that I have my crewmate, Misha Kornienko, one day I was floating by and I stopped and I looked and he was exercising on that exercise machine. And I heard this bird chirping. He had um, the, the sound of a jungle and he was just playing it on the laptop. So the Russian psychologist had sent him up all these different MP3 sounds from Earth. And the whole crew fell in love. We were like, oh my God, this is amazing. So everybody got these things. I, I spent a month falling asleep. I would hit play on the rain sound and just look, put my headphones on. And listen to rain as I fell asleep. One weekend, we took all the laptops on the station. There's probably 50 laptops up there. And I would just hit play on the rain. And so like it was raining on the ISS, which was great. It was like... Just that rain, the sound of a nice, gentle rainstorm, the kind you love to fall asleep to. And by Sunday, we were like, oh. This week on Space Curious, we're talking about our fascination with space explorers, an elite class of humans who have trained many years for spaceflight, but they're also people with families, hobbies, and bodily functions. As a space journalist, I don't get to interview astronauts as often as you'd think. One of the reasons is because this year marked the first time humans have launched from Florida since 2011. NASA astronauts Doug Hurley and Bob Behnken successfully launched on a SpaceX rocket in the Dragon spacecraft, made it to the space station, and returned home, splashing down in the Gulf of Mexico. It was an epic return for American human space exploration. Before, during, and after the mission, the astronauts, affectionately known as Space Dads, answered a lot of questions about their journey. And when they were busy doing space things, other NASA astronauts stepped up as ambassadors and helped out answering all of our questions. Hi, guys. Uh, Looking forward to seeing you come home hopefully this weekend. But one thing my fellow journalists really wanted to know was, 
How was the Crew Dragon bathroom? Is it true that technical documents refer to the toilet on board Crew Dragon as Komodo Dragon? Well, Erica, good to talk to you. I, I think we're not familiar with that uh, Komodo Dragon reference for our on-orbit procedures, so that's uh, not what we call it. The only other name other than Crew Dragon we've used is Endeavor. This made me wonder, what is it like to be on the other side of these odd questions, and why do we ask them? Stage one tanks pressing for flight. From WKMG in Orlando, this is Space Curious, the show that answers your intergalactic questions. I'm your host, Emily Speck. Liftoff of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon, go NASA, go SpaceX, Godspeed, Bob and Doug! To ask the question about why we want to know about the little oddities of space life, I spoke to some people who get to ask them and someone on the other side of the interview. I flew on the space shuttle Endeavour on STS-130 on the final space station assembly mission. One, two, booster ignition and liftoff of shuttle Endeavour with NASA's final space station crew compartment that brings a bay window view to our celestial backyard. And then I flew on a Russian Soyuz uh, on the space station expedition 42 and 43. So in, in total, I spent over seven months on the space station. This is Terry Virts, who you heard from at the start of our show. I'm a former NASA astronaut. And can you walk our listeners through what it takes to become an astronaut? Um, there's a long process that you go through. Hi, I'm Charlie Bolden. I'm an astronaut myself, and I'm recruiting the best and brightest Americans to join me. You see, NASA is on a journey to Mars. And we're on the lookout for a new generation of space pioneers. Uh, NASA hires astronauts from a couple of different backgrounds. There's scientists, there's engineers, there's doctors. And I, of course, took the, the fighter pilot, test pilot track. And uh, you go through different gates. So you narrow down to, you know, are they looking at your, checking up with your references? And then you come down for an interview and then you come back for a second interview. Do you know how many, uh, out of how many candidates you were selected from? I was picked in 2000 and I, there were several thousand. I think there was 3000 or maybe five or something like that. Back then you actually had to hit print on the printer and, you know, send in a big stack of paper. So I think it was less people applying than there is now. And there wasn't Twitter to let everybody know and so on, but it was still thousands. The most recent class had 18,000 applicants. Terry says NASA then narrows down these applicants to a class of 10 to 15 people. So it's quite a process. There's so many people who want to do it. There's so many good people. Um, there's just not enough slots for everybody. So there's definitely a degree of luck involved there too, and good looks and humility. Part of that job includes public engagement and media training. They actually bring a guy in for a week and like all day, every day, he would talk about, you know, do this, don't do this, here's some techniques. And I think a lot of it comes down to just your personality. If you want to engage with the public, uh, having space is a pretty interesting subject to talk about. And, uh, if, you know, so, and if you're not so interested, you kind of, somebody comes and knocks on your door, hey, you have to go speak at the school on next Wednesday and you do it and then you go back to your normal day job. It also helps that we just have more access to them. You know, they're online, they're tweeting, they're posting on Instagram. Uh, it's easier to get a glimpse into their lives. And I think that's, that really can make a difference for people who, you know, are like, why does the space program matter? Like, this is a way into that. This is Marina Corin. I am a staff writer at The Atlantic, and I cover all things space. I think I would say that astronauts are really, really patient people. Um, so last year, 
Welcome to the Neutral Buoyancy Lab at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. Last year, Marina was at Johnson Space Center in Houston and saw a perfect example of astronaut public engagement that personified this thought. I toured the giant pool there where astronauts uh, practice their spacewalks. This is the largest indoor pool in the world and contains a full-scale replica of the International Space Station with a support staff and a control center. And I watched two astronaut candidates get suited up and that it was kind of like watching. Now you wash the dishes. You tidy up the room. Snow White get dressed by woodland creatures. And I'll use the broom. But you know, Snow White was an astronaut and the woodland creatures are just like these JSC technicians. And the whole time, I mean, I was there watching them. There were some tour groups, some students who had flown in from Europe just to see this. Everyone was staring at them. And once the astronauts were fully suited up, everyone who was just present there in that room could go up to them and take a picture. And the astronauts can't hear anyone. They have their helmets on. It's really muffled. But they just smile and like give a thumbs up and take pictures with these people. And I just thought if I were in their shoes, I would not want this to be a a public affair. You know, I'm about to get into the water for six to eight hours in a diaper and practice a spacewalk that I really can't screw up once I'm in space. I don't need a bunch of like a, a student group like posing and smiling with me for pictures. Former astronaut Terry Virts enjoyed this part of the job enough to continue it after retiring from the NASA astronaut office. He actually has his second book coming out, directed an IMAX film about spaceflight, and pre-pandemic would do a lot of public speaking. He's been a pretty busy guy. It's actually what I do for a living. Well, it's what I did for a living until COVID hit. I was, you know, speaking publicly. That was my day job. This new book Terry wrote is a compilation of essays about his time in space including some things you might not expect. Out of all those stories, was is there maybe one particular thing that you think people are really going to say, wow, that's not really something that I thought an astronaut would have to do or expect? There is a chapter about having to cut my crewmate's hair. That's right. When you spend six or more months on the International Space Station, you're going to need a haircut. Terry Virts is referring to his mission crewmate, Samantha Cristoforetti. She's Italian and a European Space Agency astronaut. Before I was able to launch into space, she forced me to go to her hairdresser so I could learn how to do a proper woman's haircut. She sat there and for two and a half hours, I worked on her hair. This lady taught me how to do her hair. So it was, uh, it was interesting. It was definitely a, a life experience, bucket list item. <laughs> when I signed up to be an F-16 pilot, I did not expect that I would have to do that. When it came time for Samantha Cristoforetti's haircut, Terry was armed with the scissors, and cosmonaut Anton Skaplerov worked the vacuum cleaner, making sure that no hair floated off into the space station. It was nerve-wracking. I tell you, it was the most stressful thing I did while I was in space. It was so nerve-wracking. I did not want to mess that up. Did you do a good job? She seemed happy, and when we visited Italy, there was not like a mob of Italian women that wanted to, you know, kill me. Um, so I think it worked, I think it came out okay, but it is hard. There's a video of this haircut. We'll post it in a link under this episode on clickorlando.com slash space. It's also in Terry's movie called A Beautiful Planet. Now, onto the weird stuff. It's the one, like, it's the one thing that, that makes us all human, right? We all have to, like, everybody poops. That's the one commonality that, that we can have right off the bat with these, you know, heroes. Yep, we're going there. Don't worry. 
it'll be fun. I'm uh, Brendan Byrne, and I'm the space reporter for WMFE Public Radio here in Central Florida. You know, these, these folks that are put in such high regard for, for their skills and their smarts, um, but they all have to deal with the same basic human needs like going to the bathroom or showering or eating, you know. Brendan Byrne is actually an expert on space toilets and going where no one has gone before. Coming up with the right technology that's that's reliable and, and can uh, can deal with waste is, is just a fascinating, fascinating story, uh, which is why I think I was so interested. It started with a, a childish <laughs> question I had and led into this, you know, incredible engineering challenge that, you know, Engineers have been working on since, you know, the first humans went into suborbital and, uh, and then orbital flight. The first time an American went to space, there was no bathroom to ask about. This Redstone missile is the center of world attention as Commander Alan B. Shepard Jr. watches some final preparations before the United States attempts to put its first man into space. I mean, there's this famous story where Alan Shepard was, you know, in his Mercury capsule getting ready to go on the first human space launch uh, for the Mercury program. And uh, he, he was, had a bunch of coffee uh, before launch. But for the first time, there is to be a man aboard. Just three weeks after the Russians say they... I mean, he'd been in the capsule for quite a few hours, and he said he had to pee. And they didn't have anything for him. Two years of work, tests, and more work are climaxed with zero. The rocket performs perfectly as it lifts the funnel-shaped capsule gracefully aloft. Named the Freedom 7, the Mercury vehicle could be released by either the pilot or ground control should something go wrong. But quickly the reports come back. Everything a-okay, a-okay. So after that, they learned, you know, maybe we might we might need to figure out uh, either limiting the liquid intake before these these suborbital missions, or or coming up with some sort of uh, you know uh, diaper system or or whatnot. It also turns out that one of the most famous astronauts alive today says reporters and the public have missed out on asking about these everyday moments in space. Here's the Atlantic space reporter Marina Corin reflecting on her conversation with Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins. And at the end of our interview, I asked him what he wished people ask him. And he said that he wished people asked him how you go to the bathroom in space. <laughs> He's like, nobody ever asked me that. They want to know about the, the philosophical and emotional and like real dramatic moments, but I want to talk about the basic stuff. And so I asked him, like, how did you go to the bathroom while you were on the way to the moon? And he said, very, very carefully. Before your flights, did you get asked a lot of personal questions about maybe your family or what you had for breakfast or what it was going to be like to use the bathroom? You know, kids ask funny questions. There's always the standard ones. How do you go to the bathroom in space? Again, former astronaut Terry Verts. Are there aliens? How do you keep from making a mess when you brush when you're brushing your teeth what is your favorite space food what do you do all day how do you sleep on the space station but sometimes they ask like detailed astrophysics questions about dark matter besides the space station itself what is the most interesting piece of technology on board the international space station how was the international space station constructed and what was it like installing solar ray wings and truss they asked me how much money i make that's a pretty common one <laughs> I really wanted to know Terry's favorite question he's ever been asked, but it turns out the most memorable question wasn't for him. We had this press conference and... The expeditions 42 and 43 crew members, Samantha Cristoforetti. The Russians just have a different view towards women than we do in the West. You know, it's a little bit more traditional. 
and they were so amazed that Samantha was flying. They just wanted to talk to her about what's it like being a woman, and she was really tired of that. Oh, I just wanted to ask, uh, um, are you going to take any makeup with you, so something that a, a woman usually takes on a trip? Maybe, maybe you should ask Terry. Maybe he wants to take some makeup with him. This female Russian reporter in English asked her, what is it like flying with two such strong and handsome men? And Anton and I looked at her and I'm like, oh my God, thank you so much for asking that question. Because you literally just provided a lifetime of material for me to give Samantha our time about. What was her answer to that? Do you remember? I don't know. She made up something like, well, you know, we're all on the same team and, you know, we work together and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. She... <laughs> but I didn't, I don't know what she said because I was laughing so hard. Why do you think people are so fascinated with the everyday life in space? Well, I think the um, idea of something so different, I mean, it really is kind of alien in some ways, literally, you know, you're in space. Um, so the, it's the differentness of it that is really interesting. And floating is not like being on earth. I mean, there is... It's literally not earthly. People who have been to space see the world from a perspective that most will never experience. They are some of the most gifted and interesting people on the planet. But when it comes down to it, they're just everyday people like you and I. NASA astronauts Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley, Doug on the left, Bob on the right, waving to the crowd there to cheer them on. Astronauts Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley were asked a lot of personal questions about their families. They're both married to fellow astronauts, and they both have young sons. There are their families right in front of them. The virtual hugs, a very special moment. This is how they got their nickname, the Space Dads. Fist bumps. While astronauts are celebrities, national treasures, they're regular people just like us. Again, Atlantic reporter Marina Corin. You know, at the end of the day, it's Doug and Bob, two dads, two husbands, um, you know, just two residents of the world getting on top of a rocket and doing something really brave. Nobody chooses for their dad or mom to be an astronaut. They just have to, to live with it. WMFE space reporter Brendan Byrne. You know, we talk about astronauts being heroes, but I think the families of astronauts are, are just as, if not more, heroic. Uh, for being able to stand by and not being able to control what's happening around them. We always think about the technology and the rockets, but this is what it's all about, the families coming together. That's NASA astronaut Leland Melvin speaking during the countdown to Bob and Doug's historic space flight from Florida. His commentary during the launch was so pure and raw because he's been there. He could explain what these heroic families really go through. Us working together as a team to ensure they get up there safely, and back home safely for their families. That was just one more connection that we had with these um, with these guys. In this case, uh, Bob and Doug, um, is that they're they're they are dads. They were the SpaceX dads, is what we called them in the core. You know, they were the they were the SpaceX dads. Um, and, I, and I think that's important to remember that these are these are human beings. They're real people that have real problems and, and families here on Earth. And uh, you Five, can never forget that. Four, three, two. One, zero, ignition, liftoff of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon, go NASA, go SpaceX, Godspeed, Bob and Doug. America has launched. 
so rises Copy. a new Why era of American spaceflight, and with it the ambitions of a new generation continuing the dream. 20 seconds into flight, stage one propulsion is nominal. T plus 30 seconds into this historic mission. Do you want to know more about a particular planet, dark matter, or hear more astronaut stories? If you enjoyed this podcast and have more intergalactic questions for us to answer, submit your queries at clickorlando.com space. You can also reach out to me directly on Twitter at Ian Speck. I've posted the video of Terry giving his crewmate a haircut in space. Check it out on the website. We're throttling down to get ready for the period of maximum dynamic pressure. You can find Space Curious wherever you download your favorite podcasts. New episodes drop every other Wednesday. This episode was recorded, edited, and co-produced by Tad Davis and myself. A special thank you to Terry Verts, Brendan Byrne, and Marina Corinne. I'm Emily Speck. Tune in next time for more stories that are truly out of this world. Until then, stay curious. M1D throttle up. We're throttling back up to full power as we're through Max Q.